This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight is a, is a very special night, one in which we celebrate the accomplishments and contributions of Scripps climate science pioneer Charles David Keeling. We are honored to have Dr. Art Miller here tonight to introduce our speaker. Art is a prominent member of the Scripps Research Community. He leads the Oceans and Atmosphere Research Section and serves as the chair of the Selection Committee for the Keeling Lecture. Thank you, Art, for being here for this very important occasion. Please welcome Dr. Art Miller. Good evening, folks. Welcome to the 2019 Charles David Keeling Memorial Lecture. The Keeling Lecture Series is in memory of our distinguished Scripps professor, Charles David Keeling's life and invaluable contributions to climate sciences and to our own Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Tonight, I have the honor of introducing Professor Fiamma Straneo as the 2019 Keeling Lecturer. Fiamma is from Italy, and she took her laurea cum laude in Fisica at the Università Statale Milano in Italia. <laughs> she then went on to Seattle, Washington, where she got her PhD in physical oceanography, working with Mitsuhiro Kawasi on the dynamics of rotating convection. For those of you who don't quite know what convection means, it means if you heat a fluid from below, it makes it unstable and it just becomes gravitationally unstable from below. Or if you cool it from above, it makes the cool water sink below and it overturns the circulation. After, after her PhD, she, she won a prestigious Woods Hole, <coughs> Woods Hole, uh, it's hard for me to say it, but... Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution postdoctoral uh, scholar in 1999. And then um, in 2001, she was appointed as a, a scientist at Woods Hole until in 2017, we lured her away to become a professor of oceanography here at Scripps. That actually was a little bit harder than you would imagine because Woods Hole is a lot closer both to the Arctic, where she could do her experimentation, and to her homeland of Italy, where you have a beautiful climate. It looks like the climate won out, since she ended up coming to San Diego to enjoy the Mediterranean climate that we have here, and uh, she can still do her Arctic research, even, even in this um, remote location from the Arctic. So Fiamma, she's, she's been a Bjorkness Fellow at the Bjorkness Center for Climate Research in Norway. She's also a, a, a Leopold Leadership Fellow for the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. She gave recently, in 2016, the prestigious Sverdrup Lecture at the American Geophysical Union's uh, annual meeting for her research on ice sheet interactions with the ocean's overturning circulation. She's also currently serving as co-chair of the Climate and Cryosphere Scientific Working Group for the World Climate Research Program. Her interests involve many things dealing with uh, our, our Arctic uh, climate, including ice sheet ocean interactions, that is, as the ice sheets slide off the, the land, what happens to them, how fast do they melt, and how, how much does the ocean cause enhancements to the um, ability of ice sheets to melt and, and enter the ocean, which basically causes sea level rise. 
She's also an expert in the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, which is the large-scale ocean circulation that affects climate in northern Europe, and as well as looking at things like freshwater export and, and meltwater from the polar regions into the subtropics and tropics. Um, other than that, um, Fiamma and I share uh, a bit of an Italian um, background in different ways, so I like to tease her in, in different things. But um, at this point, I just want to welcome her. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the 2019 Keeling Lecturer, Professoressa Fiammetta Straneo. It's nice to be here. As uh, Art said, it took me many years to figure out that if I was going to spend the summers in really cold places, perhaps I needed to live in a warmer place the rest of the year. But um, you get older and wiser as you go. So it's an honor to be here. Um, I'd like to thank especially the Keeling uh, family. And um, it's a bit daunting to be giving a a lecture in the name of Charles Keeling. But what I'm going to try and do today is show you what, how we've progressed in understanding something about ice sheets um, as they started to change faster than we were expecting. And I'll be talking a lot about observations because that's sort of what I spend most of my time worrying about. Um, and I'll mention at least a parallel with some of the challenges in maintaining long-term observations uh, which Charles Keeling in establishing the carbon dioxide uh, measurements um, described several times uh, and endured throughout his career. So um, let's go. So, so this is going to be mostly about Greenland and my um, adventures in Greenland started in 2008, which is, isn't to say that i done nothing until then, but that's sort of <laughs> when I started in Greenland. So uh, 2008, July, I found myself in this little town in southeast Greenland. Um, the name is Tesilak. There's a little map over on, on the left side with a circle that shows you where you are. And um, it was a different kind of field work than anything I'd done before. Normally, when I go out in the field, it's with a funded NSF or a similar project. The ship is uh, arranged a year or more in advance. Everything is nice and organized, and you just have to do your part of the job. But here, we arrived in, in Tesilac, and I was traveling with two glaciologists, uh, Lee Stearns and Gordon Hamilton, and uh, it's safe to say that we didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't have a funded project. Um, in fact, we didn't really have any funding at all. We also didn't have a ship, um, but we, we did have an idea, and actually it was more their idea, uh, they had been studying uh, a large glacier in Greenland. Uh, the glacier is called Helheim. You can see it up here in, in the left-hand panel. And Helheim is one of Greenland's largest glaciers, and it discharges into a fjord. 
Ceramic Fjord, which hopefully by the end of this talk, you'll feel like it's your home because you'll be seeing lots of pictures and data from it. Um, Helheim is, is a very large glacier, and um, what, what was happening um, to Helheim had been really surprising to the glaciologists who were studying it. So like many glaciers in Greenland, Helheim terminates in the ocean. Uh, unlike some of the mountain glaciers you might have seen somewhere else than Southern California, but um, which mostly all terminate on land, glaciers in Greenland terminate in the ocean. So the ice literally flows into the ocean. It discharges icebergs. That's sort of part of its regular discharge. But what was happening to Helheim what I'm showing on the left is, is a map of velocity reconstructed uh, from satellite data. What was happening to Helheim over in just a few years, you can see it in the series of uh, images on the right, it had retreated quite dramatically, um, about five kilometers, uh, maybe three miles. Uh, but more importantly, it had doubled its flow rate. So. A glacier is effectively a river of ice. Um, if, it dis if it doubles its flow rate, it means it's discharging as much ice. It's bringing as much ice into the ocean as it was before. And this was the early 2000s. Glaciology textbooks said that glaciers are supposed to move really slowly and change very slowly. So this hadn't been predicted by models. And, and uh, the community was trying to understand what was going on. And this wasn't happening just at Helheim. So Greenland has a lot of glaciers like Helheim. The figure on the left shows velocity. Red and yellow is fast. So you'll see these narrow, small um, glaciers. There's hundreds of them draining literally the ice sheet. Um, and again, in a steady climate, this is part of the regular operation of the Greenland ice sheet. A lot of the glaciers around Greenland had been speeding up. And, and the plot on the right shows um, the circles. It's just a measure of the glaciers that had been retreating and accelerating. Um, so what does a glacier look like? When it enters the ocean, um, a typical Greenland glacier looks something like this. So it's, it's quite thick. Uh, maybe 600 meters to 1,000 meters. That's about 1,800 feet to several thousand feet deep, thick. Uh, a lot of it below the ocean surface. Glaciers in Greenland tend to be trapped in these fjords. Picture them as valleys uh, with an ocean sitting in the middle, or ice in this case. Um, and it might have a floating part. This one does we call it floating ice tongue. And um, there's obviously a connection between the ocean and the glacier. So there's a relatively large area over which the glacier and the ocean can exchange heat, fresh water. And um, so what people thought had hypothesized was happening to glaciers in Greenland is that something had changed at the glacier-ocean interface. Maybe the ocean had warmed, something like that, to the extent that it was driving more melting 
it was thinning this floating ice tongue. In some cases, the floating ice tongue was gone. And this floating portion of the glacier um, provides a buttressing, a resistance to glacier flow. So once you start melting the glacier and the tongue from underneath, you can destroy the ice tongue, you can uh, unground the glacier, and just like popping a cork, um, the, the champagne will flow. In this case, it's a glacier. Um, and, and so, but this was just a hypothesis. The truth is we didn't really know much about the regions at the margins of the glaciers. Uh, nothing had been happening. Uh, as I'm going to try and convey, it's difficult to make these measurements. There were no measurements, uh, not the most hospitable region on the planet. So um, it was difficult. There was no baseline to compare to. So why do we care about it? As, as Art mentioned earlier, sea level rise is one. It's not the only reason why we should care that Greenland is changing quickly, but definitely one that has global implications. So sea level is rising. The curve on the left is, is just a uh, satellite-based um, estimate of sea level rise um, from 93. And um, sea level is rising in, in our warming climate largely because of two reasons. One is the ocean is expanding. So as you warm the ocean, its volume increases. And uh, that's responsible for about 40% of modern-day sea level rise. The other 60% uh, is not due to uh, just an expansion. It's actually due to the fact that we are adding water mass to the ocean. This is water that was frozen over land, either in mountain glaciers, Himalayas, the Alps, uh, the Andes, uh, or from the Greenland an Antarctic ice sheet. So again, ice that was over land. And uh, the total of land ice, we call it, contribution is 60% now. And uh, Greenland is, is responsible in total for something like um, a third of that, an Antarctica for about half of Greenland. So Greenland is a significant contributor to sea level rise and one that has been rapidly increasing in the last two decades. So a short lesson on how ice sheets lose mass. Um, this is what an ice sheet, sort of how it works. It, uh, you can think of precipitation on a yearly basis over the ice sheet. Um, in a steady climate, the, any accumulation is balanced by uh, melting at the surface, which then runs off into the ocean, or this discharge of icebergs laterally. And so when the ice sheet is in steady state, what goes in is balanced by what goes out through these two mechanisms, surface melt and discharge at the marine boundaries. There are two ways in which you can drive uh, ice loss from an ice sheet similarly. One is, let's say you increase the air temperatures and do not increase the precipitation by that much, you're going to get a net increase in surface melt. There's a net loss. So this is one way in which you can drive an ice sheet to lose mass. The second way is 
by speeding up the flow of ice that is discharged at its boundary, uh, again, without compensating for a uh, precipitation. And both are happening right now in Greenland. So uh, Greenland is losing mass both because the air temperatures are getting warmer on average over the ice sheet. This plot on the left shows a reconstruction of air temperatures over Greenland from um, the 1850s, and, and you can see this rapid rise uh, over the last decade or so. And indeed, if you happen to fly to Europe and, and take a route over Greenland in the summer, you'll see that the ice sheet is speckled with blue ponds. Um, there's a lot of surface melt. Every other year, it seems to make the news because of increased extreme melt. The other way is the way I already sort of introduced, which is if you speed up the glaciers, they will be draining more ice into the ocean. And so, as I said, Greenland's been losing mass, and, and it's really because of both me mechanisms. It's a bit hard. So when we talk about ice loss from ice sheets, we like to use gigatons, which really doesn't mean anything to anybody else. A gigaton is uh, the weight of a cubic kilometer uh, of water. And... Uh, so, so the ice loss from Greenland has been estimated to be about 5,000 gigatons since 1972. Um, I was trying to find a conversion factor. Um, there's a Washington Post article that measures it in elephants, but you need a lot of elephants. So the volume of water, if you convert the ice into water that Greenland has lost over the last 40 years, is about the volume of Lake Michigan. So it's a huge amount of water. And if you spread it over the surface of the ocean, which is what has happened, it's given rise to a to global sea level of, of half an inch. And um, half an inch doesn't seem like a lot, except it's half an inch all over the planet. And so Depending on which paper and when you look at it, there's some argument about whether it's more because of increasing ice discharge or more because of increased surface melt. But roughly, let's say they're about 50-50. So what we'd like to do as, as a community of scientists studying Greenland and climate, well, we'd like to come up with projections of future sea level rise. These are very important um, for planning, for adaptation. And we do that essentially using climate models, which represent the best of our knowledge of the processes of the ocean, the atmosphere, the ice sheets, the land, how they interact with each other. And so this curve shows the latest sea level rise projections from an intergovernmental panel report, the IPCC, several of you, many of you will probably be familiar with it, but it's an intergovernmental panel that assesses all of the published scientific information and comes up with synthesis. Um, and the projections are based on the state-of-the-art climate models. In this case, um, when the report came out, this was the last one in 2013. And so what you see is the past, so reconstructed sea level and uh, measurements 
the rise in sea level up to the 2013. And beyond that, you see this red and, and blue curve. So these are projections. They were done with climate models. Uh, the blue one is a not as crazy emission scenario. The red one is a continued sort of to increase uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so depending on the trajectory that fossil fuel emissions will take, um, you expect to be in the range of, of these curves. And then there's shades. These are uncertainties that sort of represent um, a measure of the uncertainties in both what goes into the models and, and um, our ability to represent processes. So this is great, except these models do not include the dynamic contribution of ice sheets. Um, the science just was not there yet when this report came out. The models were not there yet. And um, so it's been slowly been creeping in, and, and this is a nice illustration of just how young this field is. So what I have here on, on the lower panel is any mention or discussion of what I argued is one of the ways in which Greenland, and for that matter Antarctica, are losing mass, this increase in ice discharge, the speeding up of glaciers. Um, so the first IPCC report was in 1990, and there was really no mention of dynamic ice sheet changes. 1995, it was a high risk, meaning if it happened, it wasn't going to be good, but it was indicated as a low probability event. By 2001, we were beginning to see that maybe this shouldn't be neglected, so the uh, adjective is important. In 2007, it was identified as a major uncertainty, and in 2013, we just honestly had to say these sea level rise projections are incomplete because this physics is missing in the models. And um, the upper panel shows a cartoon from, from an editorial and, and shows just as the science evolved, so did the projections of sea level rise. With the last one, the upper upper bound was two meters. But again, this didn't really take into account um, the dynamic contribution of ice sheets. So this, this is... This was an introduction. I'm going to recap uh, because we're going to go into sort of some more detailed science. But the context for a lot of the science that I do in Greenland is essentially that the glaciers have been changing. They was, they've started speeding up in the 2000s. Some have slowed down, but, but they're still discharging more ice uh, into the ocean than they were in the earlier part uh, in the 1990s. Um, there's this idea that the ocean might be changing and that changes of the ocean at the edge of these glaciers might be driving the changes, but we really don't know enough to know if this is the case. Um, I've argued that these changes are important for sea level rise and that we really need to understand the physics, the mechanics, so that we can put it in models. So this is, in a nutshell, how we're addressing this issue as a community, and, and to some extent it's, it exemplifies how 
research on improving climate projections and understanding of the climate happens. Observe, understand in the sense of interpret what you observe, understand the dynamics, the mechanisms, and lead to improved projections in the models. And this isn't a one-time train, it just keeps going around because as projections change, as models become better, we usually come up with more questions, more needs, and, and the cycle repeats. So back to July 2008, we're in Tesilac, we're looking for a boat, we don't really have a lot of funding, so eventually we find the boat. It's not your typical uh, Class A icebreaker, everybody's looking at it a bit skeptically. But it, it did come with uh, a unique um, advantage, which is the man who's sitting up in the left driving the boat. His name um, is Akalu, and he's the captain of the boat. He also happens to have grown up uh, all his life in these waters, and it's fair to say that he knew this fjord like the back of his hand, which was very useful because... Um, we didn't really have any charts. We didn't know what the depth was. Um, we didn't really have any observations of anybody who had been in there before. So we adapted this uh, rather small but very agile boat uh, to be a full uh, oceanographic research vessel. The fishing winch in the top right can actually do profiles to 1,000 meters. Italian built, really good, I'd recommend it if any of you want to go fishing. <laughs> the instrument that was hanging on the other side over to the left uh, measures uh, ocean velocities over the upper two, three hundred meters. And we also had brought some small gear to leave anchored in the fjord. We went there in July and went back in September. And so it, it, it was science at its best, very exploratory, no idea of what we would find. Um, it's about ex as exciting as it gets. Um, and what we found really surprised us. So we were able, with this little boat, sailed every day out of the sea, like zoomed around the icebergs in the fjord and surveyed the fjord up to where the red lines go. And, and so what I'm showing on, on the right here are the profiles of temperature from the fjord they're in degrees Celsius. I'm not going to try and convert to Fahrenheit because I'll get it wrong. But I, four degrees Celsius um, between a depth of, say, 200 to about six, 700 meters. This glacier is sitting at 700 meters, uh, 600 meters depth. So uh, that's the temperature that you will care about um, for melting the glacier. And that is really warm. So it's not warm enough to maybe want to swim in, but it's definitely plenty warm for melting the ice. So what, you know, these were really basic measurements, but essentially what we had shown, although we didn't know too much about it at the time, is that the waters that are, the warm Atlantic waters that are coming up from the Gulf Stream um, towards the Arctic are actually able to go under what is a cold, fresh, that's in blue, uh, Arctic current that's coming out of the Arctic and literally make it into the Greenland fjords and to the edge of the glaciers. Again, 
wind back 2008, we didn't know very much about the fjords. We didn't have bathymetry. We didn't really know how the waters would make it across. And what we did know is there's this very cold, fresh current coming out of the Arctic, which is what keeps Greenland there. So, so that was the 2008 survey. And um, what I'm going to show you now is, is sort of the dream place for us to make measurements. So this is now the terminus of Helheim. Terminus means the edge of the glacier. If you look in the back, you'll see that the land behind it is lighter color here. This is where the glacier used to be just a handful of years ago. So in speeding up, it fins, and uh, we call them bathtub rings, very technical term. Okay, so, so this, what I'm going to show you is a time-lapse camera. You might have seen these uh, movies like this are uh, available all over uh, the Internet. Uh, the interesting thing about here is this is glacier, but this is ocean. And so when we talk about trying to measure the ocean conditions at the end of the glacier, this is where we'd like to be. And this is, of course, uh, challenging and uh, impossible in, in many ways. So this is really the challenge that we've been faced in trying to understand the ice ocean, the exchanges between the ice and the ocean. Okay, so fast forward next summer. Um, we, we're a little more popular now. We still don't really have any funding, but we uh, managed to find Hitch a Ride on a Greenpeace ship. Now, Greenpeace was very interested in raising attention on ongoing change in the Arctic. We were very interested in having a ship, maybe slightly bigger, <laughs> that would take us to make the measurements. So it was actually a really good match. The Greenpeace ship is actually an icebreaker, and um, it has two things that were really fundamental. The first is the Greenland captain, the Greenpeace captain, and the crews um, are not really scared of anything that's not in their line of business. So they will go where most other captains won't go. The other thing it had, which we didn't have before, is a helicopter. And it turned out that the helicopter provided us a means to get to the region where even the Greenpeace captain refused to go. So what we're going to do here is we're going to fly over the glacier, walk away, fly back from the glacier, and we're looking for patches of open water where we can deploy expendable probes such as this, which will record temperature, salinity, velocity in some cases. And this gives you a sense of the scale. Raise your hand if you can still see the helicopter. Okay, so we weren't even anywhere near the glacier. What these measurements allowed us to do is inch our way closer to the edge of the glacier you can see now the dots extend a lot farther. And we started seeing something we weren't expecting, which I'll talk about in a minute. But basically, it was a modification of the waters near the glacier by the glacier. And, and here you see it. You, they're colder at the surface. That's a lot of ice melt. But they're actually warmer, closer to the glacier. And I'll come back to that. So 
we collected some really interesting measurements, and, and they only introduced more questions, which motivated the next trip in March of 2010. Now, March is winter, and it looks quite different, the town. Um, we actually tried to go in January, but only made it as far as Iceland. It's just really hard weather to get to Greenland in the winter. What you see here is the town, the snow. You can see the harbor over to the left. And what you can't see is actually the f one of the fjords. Um, it's covered in ice. So we made it to the town on the second time around. This was great. And the plan all along was to um, go out with a helicopter. We had the expendable probes. You can't really access the fjord by boat. Or if you can, as I'll show in a minute, you can't go very far. And um, that seemed like a really good idea. But it didn't quite work out, or at least it didn't for two weeks, because the helicopter either couldn't fly because of weather, or it was doing rescue missions, or it was doing maintenance. So, backup plan, um, snowmobile. So we needed to get to the fjord. There is a range of mountains in the middle. There's another glacier in the middle. But uh, there is a town on the fjord, and, and some of the locals do sometimes go back and forth. So uh, plan B was two snowmobiles. You can see they're pulling gear um, and two really strong big guys driving. Um, I was useless because I didn't weigh enough. Um, but anyways, and, and we, that, that was our track. So we, it took us several tries, even here. This is now probably plan D. Eventually, we had to leave at something ridiculous, like four in the morning, so that the snow would be frozen enough that we wouldn't sink in. Um, and so we get to this town on the other side. We're now on the edge of the fjord, park the snowmobiles, and find the little boat. Shovel the little boat out. There's a lot of snow. It's Greenland. And uh, finally, get on the boat. I was very happy. And make some measurements. And, you know, we could make only very small, very local measurements. This boat couldn't obviously travel very far. But we were lucky the, the next day, which was our last day in Greenland, we actually managed to uh, get on the helicopter so we could complement some of the ship-based measurements with some helicopter measurements. And, and uh, the fjord is a lot more icy in the winter. So now we had a summer and winter comparison. And um, March and August, the, the fjord is warm at depth in March and in August. It's a little bit warmer in March, but uh, that has to do with ocean variability. But what was happening near the glacier, which is a bit hard to see in these pictures in, in the summer, was not happening in the winter. And that was our telltale, that what we were seeing in the summer uh, was due to surface melt. So I said before, there's a lot of melting at the surface of the ice sheet in summer. All of this meltwater ends up being piped literally by the glacier's plumbing system. We call it hydrologic system through the glacier down to the bed, hundreds of meters, thousands of feet below sea level. And it emerges at the end of the glacier into the ocean. It emerges, it's effectively like having a gigantic fire hose. And sometimes you will actually see a surface manifestation of it. Now, what I'm saying is essentially all the surface melt is funneled to the bed of the glacier. And because it comes out thousands of feet below sea level, it's very fresh water, it wants to rise. 
it'll do so in these very dramatic plumes or imagine sort of a smokestack. And this is one right at the edge of Helheim. They're quite rare to see. Helheim has all this ice in front of it, uh, but they are there all the time and in the summer. And so this is, again, taken from a helicopter. You can see the water, how turbulent it is. So why do we care about this? Um, we care about it because let's say you're having a drink and you put an ice cube in, whiskey, whatever. If you let it be, it will take quite a long time to cool your drink. But if you add a stir, uh, your ice cube will melt really quickly. So what you're doing is you're essentially helping the exchange of heat between the ice and the water. And this is exactly what the surface melt is doing. So what I'm going to show up in the upper part is a numerical simulation of what we think is happening at the edge of one of these glaciers. This is just one channel that is discharging fresh water. You get this very turbulent plume, um, and it's acting as a stir. And it's very difficult for us, if not impossible, to measure melt. But if we use a model like the lower one, and we compare in black the melt that is happening in winter with the melt that is happening in summer because we have all of this discharge, it's significantly more. So one of the things that these measurements brought us to understand is how much more melting was happening in the summer than in winter. The other thing we did is I said there were no measurements uh, of the depth of the fjord. And in fact, if you look at the plot on the left, the fjord is all red. Red means really shallow. That was kind of the chart we had the first time we went. After going several times, and also with the help of our friends, marine mammals, tagged uh, seals, we were able to reconstruct these channels and obviously the depth of the fjord. So the seals are great. They will go where nobody, even the Greenpeace captain won't go, and they will dive. And, and um, they have instruments on the record depth. You know that the water where they dove is at least as deep as the pressure recorded uh, by the instrument. And so with a lot of dots and a lot of seal dives, we were able to reconstruct the bathymetry. And, and what we found is it is maybe not surprising that the warm, salty Atlantic water is making it to the fjords once we have the bathymetry, it's because there are these narrow troughs that are deep and allow this relatively denser water. It's denser because it's salty to make their way into the fjords. So what did we learn? We learned that the Atlantic waters are reaching this glacier, that they're driving melting, we learned that there's more melting in summer for something that we hadn't really thought of before, all the surface melt that's charged at depth. Um, and we skipped the historical reconstructions. You can ask me about them later. So again, we're, you can think that we're understanding processes as we observe. We're using models to interpret them, and we're going to put this in the models. So. We go to the fjords in the summer and once in the winter, but I was once not doing it again. Um, but we, we need measurements uh, to continue. And so the way we've been doing it is by deploying moorings. So mooring, it's, uh, at, there's an anchor that sits at the bottom, a string 
uh, with some flotation. The flotation does not go all the way to the surface for reasons that I'll explain in a minute. And we leave these in the fjord, and they record essentially when we are not there. Um, and this is, we do it all over the ocean, oceanographers' uh, bag of tricks, except in Greenland it's a little bit harder because of the icebergs. And sometimes the recovery doesn't go as smoothly because the float that is supposed to bring everything up to the surface once you've let go of the anchor uh, looks like this. So what happened here is uh, we had a mooring. It was sitting in about 2,000 feet of water. It was only extending to about 1,000 feet below the surface, which we had deemed to be uh, deep enough that it wouldn't be hit by icebergs. And indeed, it survived a lot of iceberg hits until the big one came along, and uh, it just kind of crushed everything. How do we get this back? Um, sometimes we don't. When we're lucky and you have several days to throw at it, you lower a lot of anchors, a lot of hooks on the seafloor, which is several thousand feet below you, and then you spend your day begging the captain to keep going around in circles, nice circles that you draw on the map, and then he has to drive or she around them. This is what it looks like when you're lucky and you recover it, and sometimes it's at night um, and it's no fun. But really, we won this one because we got the instruments back. The icebergs took a lot of other ones. I can't show you those because they're somewhere else. <laughs> what moorings allow us, though, is, is really to see what's happening in the fjords most of the year. And without going into too much details, we can measure velocity, temperature, salinity, and we've been able to understand the processes that bring the warm water in that control or are one of the factors that regulates melting. And uh, this, in this particular fjord, it has to do with wind events. There's catabatic winds, really strong winds off of the ice sheet. So when all is said and done, what we're really trying to do here, amongst other things, is monitoring. It's the collection of a long record, uh, much over, much like the measurements of CO2 that have generated the Keeling curve, uh, which are obviously on a much bigger scale. But here we're trying to build a record of variability in one system in Greenland. It's safe to say that this is now the one system, the large, one of the large systems in Greenland that has the longest record. Because when you don't really understand how things work, if you don't have measurements, even when in a few years you think you sort of understand, you won't have a way of checking whether your intuition, your reasoning is correct. And so this is a curve. It's just one curve. It's temperature roughly at the depth at which we think the melting is happening. And you see it's a lot of different colors. And each color was a trip, different boats, different years. Um, some big, some small. Big is not always better. That's another story. It's also a different grant, a different funding mechanism. It's very difficult for us to keep these long-term monitoring changes. I have been lucky to work with a lot of foundations as well as NSF. But every year or two years, we have to find funding to keep this going. 
I've shown a lot of what I've done, but, but really our advances have come as a community. And one of the really important things in climate is Greenland's is nobody's, no single body's problem, no single country's, no single institution. And we've worked really hard to build a community of people researching this problem, um, and I, I'd say quite successfully. So we're advocating now for long-term observing all around Greenland in sites like Helheim. Again, without this information, we really won't be able to uh, improve our ability to project future changes. But I did promise I'd say something about projections. So um, I sort of claim we'd observe, understand, and then improve projections. And it's remarkable that, again, as a community, we've been able to do so. So we want to move away from not having dynamic ice sheets in projections. So um, we've been working within a group. And, and the idea is um, there's a new IPCC report that will come out, AR6. Um, the models, the climate models are running now. The report will be out uh, in a couple of years. Um, and it's still, we're still not at a point where the ice sheet models can talk, have all the physics that they need to talk to the climate, to the ocean and atmosphere model. But we have built our understanding into connecting the ocean models to the ice sheet models. Um, and again, this is a, a group effort. Um, and I, I want to stress the diversity in the picture, um, not just um, men, women, uh, ethnicity, but we also have blue hair, white hair. right? So I, it's really important in science to be working together. And um, this is an international group that has coordinated the uh, ice sheet model runs that will inform projections. And I want to show some new results just to show the kind of thing that we can do because of um, some of the understanding that as a community we've gained that was unthinkable 10 years ago. So this is the same old fjord. Uh, the glacier is at the top, and this this is work uh, that Donald Slater, who's a postdoc here at Scripps, has led. So what I'm going to show you is we're using a climate model projection to predict the changes in temperature that will happen in the fjord and predict the changes that will happen um, in the glacier. So we're, we're now we're looking into the future. So... The colors are in, you got the idea. Okay, this is my last slide. So again, I, I work with a big team. They're mostly postdocs, students, uh, many of them. This is just uh, a really small subset of the people who have worked with me over the years um, in this fjord on these projects. It's, and I, I put them up here because they're really the ones doing all the work, and, and it's amazing to see how many of them have gone on. Some are still here. Some have gone on to do really remarkable science. And I, I like to think that it's because um, by, by making these observations, by making really getting caught up in the details of how you do things, 
by going on the ground, so to speak, you really develop an intuition and a passion for science uh, that is carrying them far. That was a wonderful presentation, Fiamma. I think we all can appreciate now the beauty of the scientific research that Fiamma does. She looked at a problem then thought about it. People had always assumed that things were really simple in that interaction between these massive, thick, hundreds of meters thick um, sheets of ice sliding off into the ocean. People thought it was just simple. They just got pushed off, and then they eventually melt with whatever water happened to be at the surface. But Fiamma's iconoclastic research just challenged that, and she went there on a shoestring you know, at high risk to plunk instruments in the water to find out that it's not like that at all. And it's just completely changed our views of the way that we think of ice sheet, glacier, uh, ice shelf, ocean interaction and the way that all melts. And it, it's a fundamentally important problem that will potentially you know, be part of the reason why we experience sea level rise in the future. And I think she's, you know, she's just an amazing scientist, this old school, like think about it, right? Just go there and measure stuff that no one's ever measured before. And Fiamma did it, and that's why it's so magically beautiful, just wonderful thing. So now we'll open up the... so far and the predictions that you have um, for the future sea level rise, do you think uh, there are uh, let's see, changes that we can do uh, in the atmosphere or the chemical um, composition of the ocean that will um, help us to counteract the sea level rise? Yep, so um, ice sheets will continue to melt and sea level will continue to rise in a warming climate and, and we will continue to warm. Um, I think it is not too late. It will sort of never be too late to um, consider a suite of solutions to decrease fossil fuel emission, decrease greenhouse gases in, in the atmosphere. So um, uh, all of this is about how much, how fast sea level will rise and how quickly we can act. Um, Fiona, yep. did I say your name correctly? Perfect. I'm way in the back here by the, uh, what was the guy getting up the bit longer? All right. Um, so my name is John Chan, I'm not a researcher, but so if I talk about bathtub rings, kind of in that um, uh, lingual, with those words, maybe you can translate them into something more scientific. If I understand the ocean, the great ocean conveyor, that's conveying the heat from the, uh, from the equator um, up into the poles, right? And the, what's driving the ocean conveyor is the the dropping of the saline water in the North Atlantic, 
which you're telling us in Greenland is dispensing more fresh water into the Atlantic. What I've read is that that ocean conveyor has been slowed down by 20%. So bear with me here. If that's true and the ocean conveyor gets stopped, it looks like the heat, the heating which is which is melting the glaciers would get would get stopped. And then we would get a um, a winter polar immediate region like we had a hundred thousand years ago. If that were true, follow my logic if I can follow myself, is that then the the equalizing effect of the oceans instead would have to be driven by the the air, by the and the winds. So the winds and then would have to displace the heat from the equator and or, and would have to equalize things from the polar regions down the equator. We'd have tremendous winds if indeed the stopped. Can you am I way off in left field or is this is this something which sounds fucking um maybe a little bit so <laughs> Um, but you know that uh, let's see. I, I, I think you, there are a lot of ideas here. We do think of you called it the conveyor belt, the overturning circulation, which this the warm currents that I showed that are taking heat from the tropics, the subtropics, bringing it towards the poles, are an integral part of. And and we do think that it's amplitude and its variability is susceptible to freshwater, for example, from the Arctic and so on. Um, the measurements of, of a slowdown, um, there's no uh, consensus on a 20% decrease. We don't really have measurements long enough to say that any of the changes that we're seeing in the overturning circulation are um, significant at this point. It's being measured uh, roughly in the Atlantic tropics for um, over a decade, and, and now there's another project close to Greenland, but it just started. So there's no real evidence of a slowdown. Uh, models, climate models do show a slowdown with a warming climate, but not definitely an abrupt shutdown. And the warming still wins in the sense that uh, the atmospheric warming over the high latitudes is still significant. So, um, and then there's the wild card of Greenland melt and Arctic sea ice melt. Arctic sea ice melt right now by volume is much greater uh, than than. Greenland melt. Greenland is more of a cumulative integrated effect. Um, we, we need the models to project into the future, but as for Greenland, some of the um, details of, of how, for example, the Greenland freshwater will get into the ocean and the impact it will have are really beyond what we can do now. So um, this isn't to say we shouldn't uh, counteract um, the greenhouse gas increase, or but we should be cautious in sort of dramatic or dire predictions of large changes in ocean circulation. Thank you. Uh, your work shows the benefits of looking at one area, one phenomenon for a long period of time. 
if, uh, if you look around, are there other areas that you would like to see get the same kind of in-depth, extended attention? You mean in Greenland or anywhere? Mm. Anywhere, yes. Well, so I, I did show data from one fjord. It, it makes for a nice uh, narrative, and it is a place that I've been returning year after year for, for a long time. We have done work in other places in Greenland, and other groups have too. And so I did not say this, but what we have found is happening all around Greenland. And um, I, I think, but the best answer to your question is um, there are dynamics in, in the climate system. A lot of them have to do with exchanges between components, um, at least I like to think so, in the sense of the ice and the ocean, um, the atmosphere and the ocean, the ice and the atmosphere. It's, it's often at these boundaries that some of the observations that we really need so that we can literally plug the if you think of a climate model as a circus, you can connect the right parts. So it, it's these boundary areas that, to me, are where we need some of the um, measurements. I also didn't talk about Antarctica. There's a whole mirror set of problems in Antarctica. In a sense, they're even harder to get to. Um, at least I can fly a helicopter and drop probes and still be within a few miles of the edge of the glacier in Antarctica, you cannot do that. You have hundreds of kilometers of floating ice, which means to understand the ocean underneath, you have to drill through. But I'm basically a big advocate of uh, returning to a site again and again. Most of the science we do now is process-oriented. Two years in, and then I'm out. I write the papers, I leave. Um, it's only by building uh, really the knowledge of, of going back to the same place, which sometimes is boring. You know, I sometimes think, what happened to those Caribbean cruises that I am missing out? <laughs> but uh, scientific cruises. But uh, it's never boring in Greenland. But it is repetitive, but repetition is good. It allows you to look deeper. Well, I'm sure that Fiamma will be happy to answer some more questions one-on-one -on -one for a little while at least. And uh, let's thank her once again for just a captivating and amazing, adventurous talk as the Keeling Lecturer. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.